Well, in case you haven't noticed, things have really gone up a gear or two recently. There's more or less unanimous bipartisan support now for lockdowns from the two major parties. Citizens are being fined, arrested, and subjected to police brutality for not wearing masks on their faces. Australian small businesses, many of which have been cornerstones of their communities for decades now, are permanently closing. Our borders are shut, our citizens are stranded overseas, and Australians are dying alone on cold hospital beds in emergency rooms. We're now being bribed, coerced, and some might say blackmailed towards mandatory vaccinations. The lockdowns, the masks, and the vaccination have become symbols of political ideology almost in themselves. Joining me now to talk about this mess is former Senator David Lionhelm. David, thanks a lot for coming on the show. Hello, Nick. How did we get here politically? That's a good question. There's actually an article in The Australian today um, written by Adam Crichton, who says um, all the preparations for pandemics, and they, they obviously never had uh, coronavirus in mind when they wrote the, the pandemic pre preparations, but they, they did allow for the possibility of a contagious, dangerous disease circulating and prepared plans for it. And none of them involved lockdowns in particular. Um, there are other preparations such as social distancing and, and uh, you know, cautions about pe you know, where people can gather in numbers and that sort of stuff to reduce spread, but no lockdowns. And then China, according to this theory from Crichton, the, uh, China, um, which doesn't care two hoots about um, civil liberties, um, they implemented uh, lockdowns, including actually welding people in their apartments in Wuhan. And the public health world looked at that and said, wow, can you actually do that? The, the Chinese are not inclined to revolt against their government. Um, and there was so there was no rebellion of, of any significance in China when that occurred. And so the argument goes, the public health world looked at that and said, goodness me, uh, we wouldn't have thought we could get away with that. But now that we know you can, um, it looks good to us too. Now, the public health industry, if you like, so the, the doctors and the bureaucrats and uh, the people who suckle off the teat of uh, government money who, uh, that goes into public health have a very strong authoritarian element to them. They know what's good for you better than you know yourself. They have this sort of implicit assumption that we all want to live forever and it's their job to ensure we do because we don't, we're too stupid ourselves to know how to do that. So the public health sector was already, you know, not inclined to um, err on the side of uh, individual freedom and, uh, and personal rights. So they gathered, uh, they collected the lessons from China and took them up with gusto. And then <clears throat> um, idiotic politicians who, who really have no principles, and I can vouch for the fact that that applies to the majority of them, um, then said, okay, well, whatever you say, um, we'll go along with that. And, and, you know, the story developed as it has. I actually floated that idea past Adam 
in in an email not too long ago and uh so adam if you're watching i i'll take a little bit of credit for that uh <laughs> adam's been on it all over this he's been doing a fantastic job one of the very few uh but i you know, look i saw this from the beginning myself i've been as i said earlier offline to you uh i've been covering this i spoke to toby young from lockdown skeptics and the, initially when i saw the footage straight away in, in around february march of well, february 2020 the footage of wuhan was coming out around january 20 january 20th to january 25th that's when the people were getting welded into their apartments and chinese were collapsing on the streets doctors were running down in hazmat suits it was all filmed on shaky uh handheld phone cameras and as you said it, you know exported to the west um that fear i don't think that that fear has actually ever left a large portion of the general public's consciousness that's been embedded in them because they just can't see clearly the numbers of this thing yeah. it, it's not yeah. i mean it, it it makes you almost lose your mind just yeah. looking at data and then looking at the reaction yeah, that's right. So fear has been a huge component of this whole exercise. I mean, whether you whether you go for the uh, we saw it in China, therefore we can do it um, argument or not. Um, there's no question the public health sector has engendered fear um, in order to achieve its its outcomes. I mean, I, I think they're sinister. The public health industry, like they're, they're dangerous to a free society, but um, as but what they've done is is um, uh, frighten people into believing that they are, are likely to die. Yeah. The media has jumped on board this. Uh, the media is populated by people who are not very bright and not very principled. Um, that's a very bad combination. So they, night after night, said this dangerous virus, this deadly virus. Mm -hmm. So uh, they never put things in context or proportion never compared it to other dangers. Um, what, what, what are your chances of dying from other causes um, besides COVID? And, and so we ended up with quite a large proportion of the population being scared witless. And we see that now in some of the very stupid behaviour that goes on, um, dobbing in your neighbours for... Um, for doing doing innocent things which have nothing to do with disease transmission, um, uh, you see people driving around by themselves in their cars with masks on. I mean, that's just absolutely brain dead stuff. They obviously got no clue as to what um, contagious risk is, even allowing the possibility that um, that they might be exposed to the virus anywhere. Um, the idea that they might be exposed to it in their car by themselves is just too stupid for words. And yet, um, you know, you can say, oh, well, they're idiots, but sure they are. But where did they get the idea from that there's this existential threat that warrants them wearing a mask mm. in their car? It's, it's been uh, drilled into them uh, via the media from the public health sector with the connivance of... Um, self-serving or incompetent and sometimes both politicians. Politicians should have said to the public health sector, all right, thank you for your advice. 
now we'll balance that against all the other factors that uh, we need to take into account as proper politicians governing them in the best interests of the country. But uh, they're lazy. Uh, they're not too bright themselves in many cases, though you know, some of them are smart enough to uh, have worked that out. But um, uh, they took the cowardly decision mm. to defer to the public health industry in practically every case. We see very, very few examples in Australia, uh, the UK, and some states in America where the public health industry basically um, called the shots. And, and the places where it didn't call the shots, um, they're sort of standout exceptions. Um, Florida, for example, Texas, belatedly. Um, Sweden, Sweden's a, a good example where um, the public health sector didn't call the shots, but they, they did have a brave epidemiologist, Anders Tainor, mm. who, um, who said, look, um, you know, I know how this is going to play out and uh, lockdowns are not going to help. Um, and he's a believer in herd immunity. And um, I have been up until recently, although there's some, there's some scientific doubt about herd immunity. But um, he, uh, he basically held back the, uh, the lunacy in Sweden. And uh, um, they're a wonderful model of what can be achieved um, at some cost, admittedly, at some cost. But um, um, th that, that cost in terms of um, COVID deaths um, is offset by the lives saved through not implementing dr draconian um, Chinese-style um, restraints that everybody else implemented. Just uh, getting back to um, sinister public health imperatives i think that there's really no more sinister public health organization than the world health organization and look i've spent quite a bit of time you know after i became skeptical of the footage that was coming out of of wuhan it was clear that the who began to make quite a lot of um quite serious mistakes uh in their appraisal and their analysis of what this virus was, where it came from. Uh, you know, they recommended to not shut down borders. Um, a lot of incredibly um, costly mistakes that people like President Trump was later blamed for, even though he was one of the first people to actually make that call to shut down the border from flights to and from Hubei province. But when you start to really look into uh, Tedros Adhanom Ghebreyesus, um, I mean, this guy is more crooked than a dog's hind leg, right? He's a bad fella. And tracing it all the way back to what he did in Ethiopia, um, indebting, the China, indebting Ethiopia $30 billion to the Chinese when he was a foreign minister. Um, what's worse is in these prepared emergency prepared response preparedness responses that of course were then sent out to all the UN member states which we are it's almost a step by step guide on introducing these policies like lockdown the language is extraordinary in some of these documents um, the report of the WHO China Joint Mission on Coronavirus Disease, which was 16th to 24th of February 2020, 
uh, within this document, he's saying things like, in the face of a previously unknown virus, China has rolled out perhaps the most ambitious, agile and aggressive disease containment effort in history. And throughout this document, he praises China's lockdown policy. He got the job as Secretary General uh, as a consequence of China's support. Um, it's, it's, um, it's very obvious that uh, at least up until recently when he started to change his tune a little bit, um, it's, it's, he's basically China's um, puppet. And uh, so he, was, he defended China. Um, he argued that um, what, or he basically repeated anything he was, he was told to by, by the Chinese. And, uh, and WHO, I've written about this for Spectator, um, WHO made some, as you say, made some massive um, errors in its, um, especially in its early days. And, um, and then Trump said, okay, uh, you know, we're out of here. We don't, we don't support you guys anymore. And of course, uh, then WHO became, um, you know, everybody's favourite in, um, in the anti-Trump world. So, um, yes, Tedros has, uh, has um, a bad smell about him, both from his uh, origins in Ethiopia when he was a minister there and uh, there are atrocities being uh, occurring in Eritrea. And, uh, and, as, um, and how he got elected Secretary General to, uh, to WHO and his behaviour at WHO. It's, um, it's sad, actually, because WHO does, in some cases, do some very useful work. Um, and what he's done is, um, is uh, tarnish it very severely. So can you explain to me just how, uh, the, the, just the gravity that our relationship with the UN and the WHO and all that has for decision-making in public health like coronavirus? Yeah. So what, what happens is the WHO makes a pronouncement and some countries around the world will say, okay, that's it. We don't, we don't have the expertise ourselves to uh, come to any independent conclusion, so we just accept whatever the WHO says. Um, Australia doesn't do that. We, our, our health department takes the view that we're capable of forming our own views, but there is enormous pressure to conform to a WHO. It's, it's controversial. To, um, to take a different view from WHO. So typically all they will do is stay silent. Our people will stay silent on an issue and uh, allow the WHO to, uh, to say what it wants to say. And uh, we will sort of keep our head down. It's, um, it's difficult um, to take an independent view. And, and we saw that, I mean, with, with uh, Trump and, and his people, although not Fauci, um, Fauci is part of the problem, not part of the solution. But there were voices in America around Trump and his administration with a different view in the early days of, um, of uh, the, the pandemic. And of course, closing the borders or particularly um, prohibiting flights from Wuhan to America and also to Australia were originally um, called racist. Mm. And uh, Trump implemented them um, in America in the early days. And of course, that reinforced uh, to the anti-Trumpers that, that Trump was uh, a racist. Of course, Australia did it too. And we had um, screams and yells from, uh, from our local anti-Trump people um, that it was racist. And now, of course, they've completely changed their tune. 
Uh, now they're in favour of keeping the borders closed forever and a day, practically, apart from those, which is I find a bit funny, um, apart from those who have relatives overseas and they want to visit them. So they are in something of a dilemma. On the one hand, um, they like the, the borders being closed because um, the wrong people have advocated them to be open, but they want to see their families and, um, and uh, so they don't know what to say. But, but the majority view um, would still be the borders should stay closed with uh, no, uh, no opening date in, in mind. WHO is responsible for that. Uh, in the beginning, they were responsible for saying um, the borders don't need to be closed. And so Trump went against their advice, mm. which made Trump wrong. And then later on, WHO said, no, closing borders is a good thing. Um, so, yeah, they are, they are, the WHO is quite culp culpable. They do have some good people there, as I said, and occasionally you will hear some sensible stuff coming out from them. Um, their COVAX program um, overall, um, notwithstanding a few glitches, will probably um, be positive. And then if you get off the COVID area, um, it's WHO, which is largely responsible, claim the credit for almost eradicating polio and for, in fact, eradicating smallpox. Um, they, but they messed up the uh, Ebola virus um, vaccination or vaccine project and had to have um, that, that was taken away from them and, uh, and led by an American team um, before that uh, vaccine um, um, was developed and used properly. So they've got a, a, a mixed history. Um, and they do publish some guidelines um, on pharmaceuticals and uh, general health precautions, which smaller countries especially find very helpful. And uh, so, you know, you, you would, it's, it's hard to say it's universally a bad organisation, but it certainly hasn't covered itself in glory uh, over this pandemic. Yeah, no, I, I certainly agree. And I, I certainly wasn't um, implying that, the entire organisation is sinister. I think that though with something like COVID, if you get your right man in top in the top position, Xi Jinping gets uh, Tedros in, just like Hu Jintao got Margaret Chan in. And with something that's as, um, as fast and as powerful as COVID-19, it can just be a subtle change to the narrative that can be sinister and that mm. can cause what's happening now, which is um, complete irrationality. And I think that within the, the directions, I mean, this joint mission statement document isn't written by scientists. You know, the language is very, it's filled with, um, with propaganda um, mm. and turn of phrase and certain things, but what is in that was the uh, the message of urgency to act without really you know, thinking act now you don't have a lot of time to think about this we have to control this right now mm. and we did and look fair enough i think it if you genuinely were fearful of this like many people were from the beginning there wasn't a lot of time to act i mean the problem though we're looking at now is we're still making the same mistakes 18 months later we're still not taking a step back victoria has entered its fifth lockdown and they still haven't 
produced a cost benefit analysis, right? Yeah, so so that brings us to the current circumstances where we are in Australia, and you're quite right. We haven't learned a thing. We're still, in fact, we we're going backwards, if anything, because um, uh, we started with a suppression strategy, uh, flatten the curve. Um, we were going to run out of ICU beds and ventilators, and there was a great panic to uh, to make more and and create more. They kicked out all the um, uh, the patients who didn't need to be in hospital to uh, make beds available for the expected influx of, of um, COVID patients. Um, they bought ventilators and fabricated them and did them all over the, um, you know, did all sorts of things in anticipation of getting swamped. And it never happened, mainly because the borders were closed. Mm. And um, that was the main factor by, by a long shot. Uh, you know, avoiding that, that scenario. But the, the intention at that time was to avoid being swamped by patients. We've, at some stage in the, the last 18 months, 17 months, whatever, um, it's switched to eradication. I think New Zealand probably provided the example to the Australian premiers. Um, New Zealand had very few cases and there was this theory developed, and I used to debate with some of the New Zealanders how realistic it was, um, that New Zealand would benefit while the rest of the world suffered by eradicating the disease within the country. And I think uh, we, we had people here who looked across at New Zealand and they, they got to that eradication point earlier than we did by, by some time. And I think they looked across at New Zealand and said, yeah, we can do that too. It wasn't a, a national decision. I don't think Morrison had anything to do with it. But, um, but certainly they, Victoria took that view, um, Western Australia took that view. And you, you could argue that they did so for good political reasons. I mean, Arden won an election in New Zealand on the strength of it. So did um, Palaszczuk in Queensland mm. and McGowan in Western Australia. Um, so, I mean, the first rule of being a politician is to get re-elected. And so they were applying the first rule. The cost involved in applying that rule is secondary. Mm. They you know, get elected. That's whatever it takes, basically. So, um, so they went from... Uh, the suppression strategy to an eradication strategy for electoral purposes. There was a time, of course, when it was rationalised that um, we would benefit. Um, we, were, we were told Australia was the envy of the world. That's right. Um, because of what we had done. Um, and, but, you know, none of them had enough wit to say, okay, what's the end point of all this? How do we get out of the situation we're in? We, we are not economically viable if we don't uh, have uh, open borders. For uh, Tourism is one of our three main industries, uh, along with agriculture and uh, minerals. Um, and we basically chugged it off. Uh, what is, what's the point of, um, uh, at which we can say, okay, we can't, we can't live like this any longer? And they didn't think that. They just said, I, I, don't wanna, I wanna get reelected. Even now, many of the decisions that are being made, particularly by Morrison, 
um, are more to do with him winning the next election than um, anything that's good for the country. If he was genuinely interested in, in people and their welfare and what's good for the country, he would have taken on the premiers over their state border lockdowns long ago. The, the High Court would have taken, a, I think, an entirely different um, view if instead of Clive Palmer's case going um, to it, it had been a Commonwealth-inspired case taking Western Australia, for example, to, uh, to the High Court because of its border hmm. closure when there were no cases in the states which I were prohibiting. I don't think it would have would, would have been sustainable in the High Court. But the wrong question was asked in the in the Palmer case, and then. The, Common, the Commonwealth even squibbed out of that. They were a, a co-plaintiff um, in the beginning and then withdrew before the case was heard or just, yeah, before the case was heard, I think. Mm. And so they basically squibbed the whole thing and let the premiers um, you know, do their worst. So it's highly politically driven and um, at, at huge cost, at huge cost. I mean, anyone involved in international tourism, for instance, is just out of business. Yeah. Um, Domestic tourism has suffered by from the border closures, um, and uh, and then the perpetual lockdowns have destroyed, or are just in the process of destroying a good part of what's left. Um, and uh, uh, we, a lot of it is a consequence of um, uh, political judgment rather than what's in the best interests of the country. So do you think that a lot of the rhetoric right now from Morrison around things like vaccine passports is simply just to appease the loud voice from the media and his leftist opposition? No, um, I think the penny has dropped with, uh, with Morrison and, and a good few of the government these days. You're hearing it now. What's our way out? You know, um, they, they spent... Um, at least six months um, congratulating themselves about how they'd kept the virus out. Now they're wondering how they can rejoin the rest of the world. And they're also looking at outside and seeing that other countries are now opening up. Tourism is recommencing and they're getting on with life, notwithstanding that the virus is still present. And, and so I think they're looking at, at options to achieve that themselves. But having frightened the life out of the public, um, they're in a difficult situation. They've, they've made, made it hard for them to politically open up until the public gets over its fear. So what's the, what's the solution to that? Well, vaccine passport, vaccination, of course. Um, you know, you'll die if you don't get vaccinated is the, is the sort of narrative that's um, widespread. <coughs> and, and vaccine passports... Um, well, if you're vaccinated, you're safe. Therefore, all you have to do is prove you're, you're vaccinated. Um, and it's kind of like um, the unvaccinated are like lepers. You know, they have to be segregated and distinguished and all that sort of stuff. Um, and uh, uh, Israel went through a period when they did that as well. And then they dropped the vaccine passports after a while because they had such high vaccination rates but also i suspect because they found it was a lot easier to talk about than to do and um israel israelis are not good at um being bossed around mm. so i suspect 
I suspect um, uh, the POMs probably won't comply much either uh, with the vaccine passport idea. Australians have shown themselves in this whole pandemic to be incredibly sheep-like, incredibly obedient. And, you know, uh, the, the Premier will save us. Gladys will save us. Dan will save us. I stand with Dan. McGowan will save us. You know, we'll die, but we would die but for these, these, these premiers. This is an, an absolute revelation to me. I never thought Australians would ever be like that. You know, the, I had these fond memories that underneath it all, Australians were still the same people of the Eureka stockade. Um, I've, I've learned a hard lesson in this pandemic. They're not the sheep. Um, they're not resistant to authority. They don't think for themselves. There are exceptions, obviously. And uh, the people who listen to your show and will be listening to this are likely to be exceptions. But um, don't kid yourself, they are um, just a small percentage. The vast majority of people are um, uh, too frightened to think for themselves on this issue. And uh, um, so the, the politics are very much against people like us at the moment. I, I don't think that will change until people who don't think like us start to feel stupid mm. about the fact that the rest of the world is opening up. The rest of the world is learning to live with this virus. They're getting on with it. Um, they are not hiding under the doona anymore. And look at those stupid Aussies for still hiding under the doona. You're, you're just you're dopey for doing that. And... Australians, if, if nothing else, hate to be internationally ridiculed. Um, this is where the, you know, Australia's the envy of the world stuff comes from. Um, we're not really the envy of the world, but we certainly don't want to be the idiots of the world. And uh, my feeling is that um, uh, once we see what's going on in the rest of the world, and public opinion will change, politics will change. Vaccination passports might be part of it, um, but... I'm not sure that that'll, there'll be a lot of talk about it, of course, but uh, I'm not sure that there'll be much. There may well be some private sector attempts to um, impose them. Um, I could easily see Qantas, for example, saying you can't fly with us without a vaccination passport. Qantas is always right at the pointy end of the woke um, arguments anyway. Um, so, you know, that's a possibility. There may be businesses that other businesses that say, unless you have proof of vaccination, we won't, we won't provide our services to you. Um, I'm not that stressed about that as long as there's competition, as long as they're not monopolies and you can take your business elsewhere. Um, but, uh, you know, it's hard to know where that's going to end up. And I think the best advice I could give on that would be watch what's happening in the UK at the moment with their Freedom Day and opening up. Um, we're seeing more and more... Um, opening up in, uh, in America now. Um, and, and then California, of course, has reimposed masks. You know, where that makes any difference. They didn't make any difference anywhere else. So I don't know why they will this time, but you never know. So, um, so there, there will be event, events occurring outside Australia, which, uh, which are very influential within Australia. It's unlikely that, you know, common sense will suddenly invade Australian politics other than when they can observe what's happening outside the country. Or observe uh, financial destitution within 
their own household. Yeah, nowhere near enough of that. Um, I mean, you know, we've got this idea that we can just keep printing money and throwing money at this issue um, without end. Mm. And um, we've had lots and lots of sad stories, you know, people denied access to their dying relatives or their children and businesses going broke and it hasn't moved the political needle one jot. And I, the, the decision makers, the public health uh, mafia and the, um, and the relevant politicians, they're not in any danger of suffering financial hardship. So I, I can't see that, that changing. I think that a lot, there would be a significant percentage of the people that you're referring to as sheep would actually perhaps be maybe wolves in sheep's clothing when it comes to um, extreme self-interest, right? These people, if you're working from home, you're getting employed by the government, you're wearing your ridiculous rainbow equality lapel, whatever they are, um, you're taking 15 cigarette breaks a day, seven sick days a year, you're laughing. I assume it's the same in New South Wales, but Queensland is the largest in employer in the state of around 230,000 people. Is that pretty much the same in most states? Yes. yes so, so they've got, they've got the support. Like when people say I, I stand for Dan, I think it's because maybe even on a subconscious level, Dan's fulfilling their dream, which is to have zero responsibility. They don't have to engage in the fight for life because life is a fight at times. They can get their paychecks. And these people, I see it more and more in Labor voters. I mean, I've, I'm not of either side in my convictions. No one really knows who I've ever voted for. But what I see amongst these new Labor voters is this, um, is this elitism, this kind of champagne socialists, they call them, you know, and they look down on people that want to fight for liberty. So I think that this virus is almost, has almost become a political animal in and in of itself. I, one of the craziest things I'm sure you see it is that people have little emoticons of um, syringes and masks in their names. It's mm -hmm. sort of like the Nazi swastika. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So uh, how do you describe I think those people were there all along. Um, they, they're the people who um, like having decisions made for them. Um, you, don't, you don't go and work in the public service for all your life if you're an entrepreneur. You know, you just don't do that. Um, you know, this argument about um, casualisation of labour and, um, and making casuals permanent um, there's two aspects to it. One is that it's the unions trying to uh, unionise permanent employees. But the other aspect of it is that the casual employees don't want to be permanent because they make more money and they're perfectly happy with the insecurity that comes with it. So there's a sort of a philosophical headbutting going on um, in, in that whole process. So there are a, there are a lot of people who um, work, like working for the government regarded as secure employment, um, never question anything other than, um, you know, when can I have my holidays? Am I entitled to 10 days or 14 days? Or, or what's my superannuation rate? Um, 
in this job and um, and how many sickies can I have? There are a lot of people like that. And uh, yes, they're the ones who don't care to hoots about the shopkeepers, the, the tradespeople, the, um, uh, the business people who are losing heavily in, in the consequences of all this. There is an issue though that I think um, uh, we may not have got our heads around yet, and that is the New South Wales government decision to shut down the construction industry. Mm. Um, that was a big call. Um, and the, the reason I think it's worth thinking about um, as a new element in this is that it is absolutely dominated by individual traders. Um, there are the sole traders or small companies. Um, they work, they get paid when they work. When they don't work, they don't get paid. They've not that many of them are on wages. Mm. And um, they like that. I mean, you know, they make good money, but now for the next two weeks, they're not going to make any money. And they can get, they can apply for, if they're interested, in getting $600 a week um, as a sort of a welfare type thing. $600 a week for many of them would barely cover their cigarette bill. Hmm. So um, what's, and on Saturday, this just this past Saturday, um, a lot of great big trucks did a convoy through the city and along, over the Harbour Bridge and, and around and, um, and disrupted traffic. Um, those are the same people who are now not able to work the people who drive those trucks. Now, the government has started winding back a few of the provisions in the construction shutdown, although it's still basically in effect. Um, now, maybe those construction people are sheep like the rest of Australia, but, and I, I hope they're not, but there is a possibility that um, because they're not like public servants, like teachers, like people who work for big companies with nice, safe jobs, um, that because they they're you know they know the direct link between their work and their and their money, um, they may arc up over this and they may not tolerate um, two weeks of uh, enforced idleness. It's it's possible, and the government has made it has obviously heard them. Um, and it said there's absolutely no ca uh, case for extending the shutdown of the construction industry beyond the end of July. And as the, what I heard was that they told New South Wales Health, if you don't stomp out the virus in that time, um, then you better have a plan B because the construction industry is going back to work anyway. So, so that's an interesting element to it. It's but a very... Yeah. It, it may be still that the construction industry is primarily populated by sheep it, it wouldn't surprise me too much and that nothing much will come of it yeah maybe i mean it's a it's a you know it's a tough job a lot of it and generally when you're working that hard physically with labor you know you don't have a lot of time or energy to be thinking about the um the ideological aspects of society at the moment but one thing that's also worth mentioning i think is the and i've i've done a, an episode on this and 
spoke to a, a gentleman named John Brady who runs an organisation called Mates in Construction that you might be familiar with. Uh, it's a suicide prevention agency because there's a, um, a very large imbalance of suicide, male suicides in the construction industry compared to the rest of the general population. And one of the causes, one of the contributing factors to that is uh, the fact that they don't have a lot of um, security around the job. It's often paycheck to paycheck. So it's just another aspect of um, um, pain that this will bring. But it would be interesting if the construction workers started leading the, the rebellion. So there's been a couple of protests. There's been a couple of protests out in Blacktown, um, and um, and the police have um, have behaved in a classic thuggish fashion, which not a good idea with many of these construction people. They're um, they're not a, not averse to a bit of um, punch uh, punch ups. So um, I'm not sure whether that's going to go anywhere. Um, there's also um, the Eid festival, the Muslim festival, which is occurring um, anytime now. I'm not sure whether, I think it's all started, but it's imminent anyway. And that involves large gatherings, uh, family dinners and so forth, family meals after they, after they, um, uh, well, it's Ramadan first of all, and then, um, and then feasting and it, it culminates in Eid. And I'm interested, I'll be interested to see how that goes. Um, whether they enforce it, because there'll be plenty of, uh, of in the Muslim community who will say, well, I don't care what you say, this is my religion and I'll do yeah. what I like. It's comparable to saying to Christians, you know, you can't go to mass. And um, um, so it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. And, and of course, then the Muslims are quite good at playing the victim card and saying, well, there's the victims of racism as well, although I find that funny because... Um, Muslim is a religion, not a race, but still and all, they play that card. And um, not as much uh, as say the, the white academics like to play it. No, that's right. Yes, correct. So, uh, um, so you know, there's some, some interesting wrinkles uh, uh, to occur. My, my thinking is that if this Delta variant is as contagious as they're saying, and the science seems to suggest it is significantly more contagious. Um, and so each infected person is far more likely to infect, infect other people than the previous um, variants of the virus. Um, it may well be they will not get it back in the bottle that the genie is mm. out. Um, that is a distinct possibility. It's now, um, you know, they, they're saying, oh, the case numbers are down, but then the number of transmissions which they can't account for in the community is not coming down much. And... Um, um, and the epidemiologists, to the extent they've got any credibility left, are arguing that on their modelling, based at the current rate of, um, of detection of cases and quarantining of them, the lockdowns will have to continue for two months. That would be a deal breaker with the public. Mm. I, you know, the Victorians put up with that, but the construction industry won't. And I, I don't think... I don't think the New South Wales public would put up with that either. There, there's a little bit less respect for um, uh, for you know obeying the law in Sydney than it is in Victoria. That's historical, and um, 
and also there's a Liberal government in New South Wales, so therefore the lefty lovey Labor, Greens, um, I stand with Dan type people are not there to um, you know, back up the government. They're not on, on the uh, government's side. Mm. And, and then on the, on, from the government's constituency, there's a very large proportion that's absolutely aghast that Gladys Berejiklian has gone back on her word about uh, not imposing lockdowns and imposing them as a last resort and all that sort of stuff. And then brought in, you know, something as only, well, in some parts it's worse even than Victoria or in other parts it's not quite as bad. So I, you know, the the, um, the political source uh, support for what's occurring in New South Wales is a lot weaker, and uh, so I think there's a reasonable chance that um, if they don't get the virus under control quite quickly, and I I think that's distinctly possible that they won't. Um, they may have no option but to back off on the um, on the control measures anyway. Then it won't be brought under control um, at all. And then it'll be like it was in America and like it was in the UK and Israel and, well, most, most countries of Europe, in fact, a race between the rate of vaccination and the rate of infection. And uh, that'll be an awful shock to Australians, an awful shock. It, it's be nothing new to our countries outside Australia, but it will be a massive change of thinking. And uh, Morrison quite likely lose the next election. You think so? Um, if that occurs, yeah, quite likely. I mean, there, there's just so many people who just want the government to um, uh, wrap them up in cotton wool yeah. and keep them safe. It's a real sign of, um, of a, a troubled state of the West, I think. Um, oh, yes. a, a country that's become far too decadent, perhaps. Well, hopefully we get there, but uh, it'll be interesting to see what happens in the meantime. And it'd just be nice to see a few more voices of dissent um, out there in the two parties. We're talking about sheep. It seems like the two major parties don't have any kind of internal disputes about what's happening that we get to see. The way decision-making in governments work is um, decisions and debates are held behind closed doors and then the government comes out with the decision that was made behind closed doors and, and they all sing out of that same songbook. Yeah. And, but we do know that in New South Wales, for example, there are three ministers in the cabinet, in the state cabinet, who strongly opposed the lockdowns and they were outvoted by, um, by the other members of the cabinet. So the voices are there, but they're outnumbered by the, by the pants sweaters. Um, and yep. the, same, the same at a federal level, you know, either a Liberal or a Labor backbencher, they have no say in any of this that's been going on at the federal level either. You know, the vaccine ordering, the vaccine rollout, you know, if you're if you're not one of a small group of people, um, ministers in the cabinet essentially, and even then, not all of them have have any say. Um, you're out. You're observing it just as much as you and I are. Mm. You're not involved. You know, the the uh, the idea that there's some sort of um, uh, debate involving a lot of voices which reaches some rational conclusion. I'm afraid that's a long way from reality. That's not how decisions are made in governments. They are, they are um, legitimised autocracies, really. <laughs> 
hence the outcomes we're experiencing right now. Well, yes, although, um, you know, knowing what we know now about um, most of our fellow Australians and their, um, and their willingness to stand up for their personal rights, I'm not sure that we'd actually get any better result if they were the uh, people who were making the decision. That's true. I mean, that's the one of the flaws of democracy, isn't it? It's um, you only need to get fifty-one percent, and if fifty-one percent of those people are idiots, then that's who's that's who's governed. Absolutely, and we have compulsory voting, so all those voters, all those uh, idiots, um, even have to vote. At least in countries where uh, where they have voluntary voting, which is most of them, um, we uh, uh, you would hope that. Um, some of the more idiotic types um, actually stay home and don't vote because they can't find their way to the voting station. All right. It was great to talk to you, David. Uh, hopefully um, things will progress in a more positive fashion, but I'm not holding my hopes up for the immediate future. Look to the rest of the world. It'll be the guide. Well, there's unlikely to be anything um, homegrown that's refreshing to you and me, but uh, the rest of the world will... Uh, be heavily or highly influential. So if you want to know what's going to go on in Australia, look at what's happening outside Australia. Absolutely. And I'm going to stick with my prediction from a long time ago, which is that nothing's going to change until uh, Trump takes back the White House. <laughs> yeah, oh, well, that's a possibility. But uh, yeah, I, I'll, I, won't, I won't go into that one. Another time. Thanks yeah. a lot. Okay. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.